Welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Welcome to uh, Bridge Church. Uh, I'm Russell Berry. I'm one of the pastors here, the teaching pastor. Our lead pastor, James, is taking a, a Sunday off. Uh, well-deserved one after a long extended series in the book of Revelation. Um, and so what we've done over the weeks that uh, he's been taking a break is we have done this series called The Authentic Series. And in this series, he basically just said, hey, whatever's on your heart, that's what I want you to speak on. Whatever will be authentically speaking to where you are. And uh, so as I thought about this particular message in this Sunday, what it reminded me of one of my favorite moments in Black Panther, right? In the movie. There's a moment when the queen, played by Angela, Angela Bassett and Nakia, are meeting with M'Baku to figure out how to defeat Killmonger. And as they're strategizing, Everett Ross, the lone American and the only white dude in Wakanda at this time, is, is sitting, you know, is there. And he tries to interject. And uh, M'Baku, sitting on his throne, says, ah, you cannot talk. And what he was saying was that there are those that have unique insights and perspectives because, you know, they're from Wakanda, that he had to just step aside and listen for a sec. Now, the interesting thing is once he listened, he then later speaks to support their plan, even in putting himself at harm's way. And I can relate to Everett Ross today because this message has come as a result of me learning the need to listen before speaking. Over the last couple of weeks, I've listened with a mixture of emotions, of anger, of sadness, to the tragic stories of sisters who have survived sexual violence and have said, me too. For many of us men in the journey of listening to these stories and being confronted with realities that we were not really fully understanding, we also need to listen and not talk just yet. On October 15th, 2017, actress Alyssa Milano tweeted, if all the women who have been sexually harassed or assaulted wrote Me Too as a status, we might give people a sense of the magnitude of the problem. She encouraged survivors to share their stories using the hashtag Me Too. In the wake of allegations and the revelations of Harvey Weinstein, who at that point was one of the most powerful men in Hollywood that for decades assaulted and raped women, Milano's message struck a nerve. In the course of 24 hours, Me Too was retweeted 500,000 times. On Facebook, 12 million posts in that same time span. And Facebook actually reported that 45% of users in the United States had a friend who posted using the term. 
actresses who have become household names like Lupita, Rosaria Dawson, Angelina Jolie, Viola Davis, Ellen DeGeneres, Gabrielle Union, and yes, men like Terry Crews all said, me too. But while the attention to this idea was new, the phrase and the movement to respond to these incidents was not. New York City native Tarana Burke actually began this movement over 10 years ago when she saw the girls that she was mentoring share their stories of sexual assault and harassment. And she noticed that these black and brown girls were particularly vulnerable. She's been working to empower them ever since, but as is often the case, the voices of women of color are not listened to. So we knew that this was a significant watershed moment when Time Magazine uh, recognized her work and those of other women by calling them the persons of the year, along with the term silence breakers. The silence that they broke was something that is a worldwide epidemic. The World Health Organization has estimated that about one in three women globally have experienced either physical and or sexual violence in their lifetime, one in three. In early January 2018, about 100 Christian women also launched a website in a movement called Silence is Not Spiritual to call for changes to how sexual misconduct and assault is dealt with in the church. On the website, it states, at the intersection of racial and gender violence, women of color bear the disproportionate burden when disability, gender identification, and social stigma is considered rates of violence increase dramatically for all people. And as we just heard, these numbers are not simply statistics, but they're stories of our sisters, of our mothers, of our daughters, and yes, of our fellow church members. I remember when all this came to light, how different my reaction was to my wife's. I was shocked at these revelations. I was like, wow, who knew anything like this was so widespread? She was not shocked because she had learned much earlier just in her experience in life that to be harassed, to be assaulted was too frequently normative in women's lives. As I began to see how much God speaks on this very issue throughout his word, I saw how often it was ignored as well. You see, this isn't comfortable Sunday afternoon, evening talk, but it's necessary because shame causes many to suffer in silence. So today we also say silence is not spiritual. The Bible is often misunderstood and misrepresented when it comes to reflecting God's value and esteem for women. You see, part of the issue is the difference between our culture and the ancient Near Eastern culture of the context of the Old Testament and New Testament is so vast that it's easy to get confused. Add to it the blind spots of men who oftentimes are responsible for teaching 
And the situation is even more challenging. And if we're not careful, we can even interpret the text in the exact opposite manner than it was intended. For example, some have come to the conclusion that the passages like the ones we are going to explore today actually condone sexual violence against women because it mentions it. In fact, it reveals God's judgment on such violence. As author Carolyn Custis James has written in her book, Maelstrom, patriarchy is not the Bible's message. Rather, it is the fallen cultural backdrop that sets off in the strongest relief the radical nature and potency of the Bible's gospel message. Oh, I see y'all don't really quite get what I just said because if you did, there'd be some noise right now. What she's saying is that embedded in a fallen sinful culture that the Bible describes and breaks down as new stories is a subversive different plan that God is revealing that is actually affirming his image in men and women equally. And he's doing that against the current, against the tide of human history. The other challenge is people don't understand that the Bible is just not one book, but it's a book of books. It's similar to if you took all your high school poetry, history, ethics, philosophy classes and bound them into one book. Different genres of literature, different types of tools needed to interpret. And we get this when it comes to media nowadays, right? Like, we understand that you would listen to J. Cole's KOD and what its commentary on drug use is. It's somehow different than when we watch CNN and the news. We understand that the context determines how I draw meaning from it. Now, does CNN or J. Cole celebrate the events that they report? The wars, the scandals, the corruption, and yes, even allegations of sexual assault against even the president of the United States? No, these news sources are covered because they are newsworthy, not because they are endorsements. And we're about to read a book of history filled with actual actions of men and women that is more like an account of a major news story than it is. So with that in mind, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 13. It reads, some time passed. David's son, Absalom, had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And David's son, Amnon, was infatuated with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister, Tamar, because she was a virgin. But it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother, Shemaiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. And he asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, so miserable every morning? Won't you tell me? Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare a meal in my presence so I can watch and eat 
from her hand. The first way we see that silence is not spiritual is that silence is complicity. For some context, this passage takes place right after King David is confronted for a series of serious transgressions and sins against God. You see, in the previous chapter, the prophet Nathan called David out because he had committed multiple acts. One was sexual violence by summoning Bathsheba, a married woman, to have sex with him. Contrary to oftentimes how it is brought forward and interpreted, this was not simply an affair, but what some would call power rape. You see, Bathsheba had no choice. When the king summons you to his chambers, there's really only one thing she could have done. So David follows up this scandal when she reveals to him that she's pregnant by killing her husband and marrying her. David contributed to the very rape culture that now infected his very own children. Like a seed planted in the soil, it eventually grew and bore ugly fruit. What is rape culture? Well, it has been defined this way, a setting in which rape is pervasive and normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. Behaviors commonly associated with rape culture include victim blaming, slut shaming, sexual objectification, trivializing rape, denial of widespread rape, refusing to acknowledge the harm caused by some forms of sexual violence or some combination of these. We see this culture here in this text in several ways. Amnon, it says, is infatuated with Tamar to the point of making himself sick. The objectification of the female body is a key component of rape culture and is still making men sick. The frustrating and often fearful experiences of women hearing cat calls and hey shorty and pulling on their arms as they walk down the street is part of the problem. But so is the joking way that we simply accept these unwanted advances as normal. Me Too founder Tarana Burke put it this way. Gender-based violence starts on one end with harassment and runs the gamut to murder so that there's no story that's unimportant. The perspective that looks at women as sexual objects for our pleasure is part of this culture. This is the culture that uses women as props in videos, like vixens, or in movies. This is the culture that produces pornography as an over a billion dollar industry that literally rewires the brain to fixate in more and more dangerous ways, like what Amnon has just said. And the intersection of poverty and human trafficking in pornography is also real. You see, nobody grows up and says, I want to be a porn star. But nowadays, there's 20 to 30 million women, girls, boys, and men enslaved in human trafficking. And over 80% of that human trafficking is coercion into prostitution and making pornography. We have been obsessed as a culture and making ourselves sick. 
So Jonadab concocts Amnon's diabolical plan. He could have spoken up to reflect Amnon's impulses, said, nah, bro, you don't do that. But instead, he actually encourages it. And we see this in our culture as well. It's the mentality that Rick Ross expresses when he raps, put Molly in all her champagne. She ain't even know it. I took her home and I enjoyed that. She ain't even know it. And it's the same culture that applauds such lyrics and downloads them instead of rebuking it and calling it out. Oh, yeah, we're going to get real today. You see, silence is complicity. Men, we must no longer be silent. We must boldly speak out against this toxic culture. The jokes and assumptions that tolerate sexual assault must die. Because as we also see in the text with Amnon and Tamar, silence leads to violence. It goes on to say, so Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so I can eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Then Tamar went to the house, to his house, while Amnon was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, everyone leave me and everyone left him. Bring the meal to the bedroom, Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, sister. Silence is not spiritual because it leads to violence. While it is clear that Amnon thinks that this is somehow about love, this is really lust. It's not consensual. It's not mutual. It's about him. But it would be a mistake to categorize sexual violence like this as primarily even about lust, but it's about power. You see, as Carolyn Custer James also writes, crimes against women are not crimes of passion, but of power. This is another issue that the church often misses in its critiques about sexual violence. And in our culture, we have some disturbing example of this. Even prior to the newswire coming down the pipe the last couple of days, I had already planned on talking about R. Kelly. You see, for the last several decades, it has been an open secret of the fact that he targets young women, the fact that he uh, is controlling, power hungry. But now these revelations have come out. And then even some of this after Harvey Weinstein about what can best be called as a sex cult in which he dominates and controls people, separates them from their families so they cannot even communicate. And in some reports, treats them as his pets. But because he's the self-proclaimed Pied Piper of R&B, we simply turn away. I've seen the impact of this firsthand. One of my wife Tamika's closest friends when, I was, when we were dating in college was also was dating a deacon at her church. One night, Tamika got a call from her saying that this man had beat her. Tamika said that she wanted to take her to the hospital because she was in bad shape and that I would come to pick her up, but she would only agree to let me come pick her up if I promised not to look in the backseat and see her. Of course, I promised, 
and did my best to honor the request. But as I was, you know, just making a turn and I had to look in the rearview mirror, I happened to catch a glance of her swollen, bruised, and bloody face. And I could not believe what I saw. And what happened next was just as shocking. You see, when the leaders of the church were made, you know, told about this incident, he was sat down for a month. That's it. We couldn't believe it. We left that church. And in the midst of such tragedy, many are forced to ask, what is God saying in this? Well, the first thing we see is that we must listen to Tamar when she speaks. We must listen when these women speak. Look at what she says in verse 12. Don't, my brother, she cried. Don't disgrace me for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. Where could I ever go with my humiliation? And you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Please speak to the king for he won't keep me from you, but he refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. Three times she cries out, don't, don't, don't. And it says he didn't listen and use his physical strength to subdue her. Tamar uses actually the same expression when she talks about what an outrage in Israel, the place that was supposed to be God's standard bearer in the world for how his people would act. She echoes in Genesis 34, verse 7, when the sister of the 12 sons of Israel was raped and expressed the outrage that God had toward violating one of his daughters. God speaks even in the midst of such evil. He is not silent. She declared that this evil was an outrage and the only one who appears to God's word in his whole story is her. We see what God has to say about this because the gravity of the crime in the law was death. It reads in Deuteronomy 22, 25, and 26. But if a man encounters an engaged woman in an open country and he seizes and rapes her, only the man who raped her must die. Do nothing to the young woman because she is not guilty of an offense deserving death. This case is just like one in which a man attacks his neighbor and murders him. God's wrath was severe. Even in our current laws, the death penalty is never a sentence for rape. The destruction of what sexual assault does to all involved is why this penalty was so extreme. God speaks even in the midst of such evil. He is not silent. Now, the next part of the story is confusing and it shows the ripple effects of trauma. It says, so Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity that the hatred he hated her with was greater than the love he had loved her with. Get out of here, he said. No, she cried. Sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. Now I need to break this down. You see, we, we see in Amnon's response, first of all, that this was never about love. Suddenly he hates her. But you see, many sisters here have seen guys who start off expressing their love and their appreciation and how cute you are walking down the street. And when you continue minding your own business, the same dude two seconds later is now calling you out your name, spewing venom. Because see, it was never about you. 
Tamar begs not to send her away. Her cry doesn't make any sense in our cultural context, but it reveals the ripple effects of trauma. You see, in the ancient Near Eastern culture that we're talking about, it was a male-dominated society. The only socially acceptable way women could find security and the community's approval and favor was through marriage and childbearing. Men in this society would not only marry a virgin, another problem with the culture that had no such restriction on men. So a woman who was raped was simultaneously traumatized in the present and robbed of her future. She would have been disgraced to be, felt the disgrace of being alone in, in many people's eyes barren. So to rape her was not only to violate her in that moment, but to ruin her future and expose her to the shame. We have to understand this in order to understand Tamar's appeal and plea to Amnon. She was appealing to the provision that was in Deuteronomy 22, 28, and 29. But look at what goes on further. It says, but he refused to listen to her. Instead, he called the servant who waited on him, get this away from me. Doesn't even call her a person. Throw her out and bolt the door behind her. Amnon's servant threw her out and bolted the door behind her, doing exactly what he told the servant to do. Now Tamar was wearing a long sleeve garment because this is what the king's virgin daughters wore. Tamar put ashes on her head. She tore the long sleeve garment she was wearing and she put her hand on her head and went away crying out. The silence and complicity of the servant is staggering. He throws her out, but it also reveals our society's way of tending to focus more on protecting the attacker than the survivor. We still live in a society that teaches don't get raped instead of do not rape. Tamar spoke, but he refused to listen to her. And tragically, too often, we refuse to listen when our sisters speak as well. This silence is not spiritual. Tamar speaks up and speaks out and shows us a better way. Absalom, her full brother, you see, because David had multiple wives, another way in which he transgressed God's original intent and command. So Absalom was Tamar's full brother. Amnon was her half-brother. And he listens to to her, and then it says, the text says that he takes her into his home so she would not be destitute any longer. And he shows us in many ways what to do and some things not to do. One, he intercedes on her behalf by allowing her to live with him. But also, we learn in the next chapter in 2 Samuel verse 14 and 27 that three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter named Tamar, who was a beautiful woman. There's a reason why the text doesn't bother mentioning the names of the sons. It is to highlight the fact that Absalom saw and decided to say, there's going to be another person in our lineage with your name. Your story doesn't end here. Now, of course, nothing can give back what Amnon took away. And in our lives, sometimes people take things away that we cannot get back, but we can find redemptive moments and experiences in the midst of them. Can you imagine Tamar looking into 
her niece's eyes that bore her name and experiencing healing step by step. Now, Absalom also told, shows us some wrong things to do. He also silences Tamar he, if, for the reason of his plot to kill. He said, hey, you know, don't say nothing. And then he waits two years. Perhaps he waited for his father, King David, to actually do something about the situation. Perhaps this was just a part of a plot because he knew at this point David wasn't. But in any event, he waits two years and then sets up an elaborate plan and kills his half-brother in cold blood. The cycle continues because even he, with this aspect of violence, continues to um, abuse and rape women himself later on. Now, we shouldn't take matters into our own hands, but we should demand justice. How? Well, we are to act in several ways as a community who cares for each other. In Galatians 6, 2, it states, carry one another's burdens, and this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If you see someone that is carrying a weight, it's saying don't let them carry that weight by themselves, but bear up under it with them. And as brothers, we have to do this in particular. We must support victims of trauma in several ways. We can carry their burdens by listening just listening to their story like we just heard, by being sensitive to survivors' experiences, not equating the traumatic event with sexuality or promiscuity. Because see, the reality is too often people are wanting to know, well, how long, were you, how, why are you up there so late at night? And I remember when I didn't know any better asking that question and the Mike Tyson situation years ago. But we also have to realize that it even doesn't matter, it matter if someone, how they identify in terms of their sexual identity. The reality is the traumatic event happened and we need to be there and care regardless if you identify as a lesbian, as bisexual, as gay, as transgender, it doesn't matter. And neither does someone's sexual history or their sexual past. Providing encouragement and prayer is another way to respond and speaking up against inappropriate comments or behavior. As leaders, we must also speak. The scriptures clearly hold church leaders to a higher, higher standard when it comes to responding to sexual violence. Sadly, too often, that leadership has fallen short. And for that, we need to pray and repent ourselves. Church leaders must report to the police and not hide accusations under the rug. And the thing is, it's right here in the book. The problem isn't the book. The problem has been the lack of application. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you see right there that church discipline is supposed to be enacted. It's, it's in the context of sexual immorality. A man has sex with his mother-in-law and Paul and doesn't repent or anything. And Paul says, look at what he says, throw him out, hand him over, hand that one over to Satan to the destruction of this flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Not a slap on the wrist, not taking a month off. You're out of here. And I'm going to say that right now, <laughs> brothers, you'll be out of here. To the survivor here, there is this, this is a safe space to share your story. I gently offer this counsel. 
Alyssa Barbash, a psychologist, said this, all unfinished psychological business eventually catches up and can create significant distress in your life. Don't suppress this or just try to act like everything is fine in order to keep moving. We are willing to walk with you through a path of healing. The pastors and our wives are available to respond and care for you. We have set up an email address, me too, at bridgechurchnyc.com. In the subject line, you can just request who you would like to write to, either a pastor or his wife, and that person will be forwarded the message and only that person will see it to the right person. Another resource is Safe Horizons. It's a center that specializes and focuses on helping uh, victims of sexual assault and re recover. Uh, you can actually even just chat with them live chat on their website or go to their office or call. A helpful book that you can get on Amazon is Healing the Wounded Heart by Dan Allender. Lastly, I leave you with Tarana Burke's words. Tell your story if you feel compelled to tell it because not only will it help someone else, it will help you. There is hope. 90% of individuals recover from a tra traumatic events like this. And one theory that they found support for is that those individuals who recover do not avoid the trauma. You see, Tamar did not avoid the trauma. She put ashes on her head and she tore her garments. This was an act of mourning and a recognition of what had just happened and the impact that it would have on her future because no longer would she be able to wear the garments that the virgin daughters of the king wore. But God was not done speaking to her yet. You see, he would later reveal that he still has a word for those who have experienced such trauma. He would later reveal this in Isaiah 61, one through four. It reads, the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. To comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. You see, the prophet sees that God will heal, he will comfort, and he will give, look at that, beauty in exchange for Tamar's ashes. Yes. Splendid clothing in exchange for those that she has worn. We serve a God who sees and hears and speaks to those who are hurting. And so to be like him, we will be for and believe in women and girls because our God is. We will listen and include women in our conversations because that's what Jesus did. We will invest in you and defer to you as the experts of your experiences because you are worth it. What Isaiah saw as a promise of God would one day come to pass in Galilee. You see, Jesus opened up the scroll to this very passage and declared, today, as you listen, the Lord has fulfilled this scripture. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. We must speak because Jesus has spoken and he has chosen to identify with us in our deepest suffering. He has said, me too.
In Matthew 25, he talks about the rewards of those caring for the marginalized and the judgment on those who chose to ignore them. He says on judgment day, he will reject those who choose not to speak and act. He says, look at what he says. Then too, then they too will answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you? Then he will answer them. I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me too. Jesus says, what you have done to the most vulnerable, you have done to me too. He identifies with us who have experienced violence because he experienced violence for our sake. He was beaten so badly, people turned turned away. He was disgraced and humiliated publicly like Tamar, and he was crucified. But the good news is that's not the end of the story. Because he speaks to survivors just what he said to Mary and Martha, who were going through their own period of mourning when their dear brother Lazarus died. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? His word is that the agony is not the end of the story. There is healing in his wings. Silence is not spiritual because the very word of God, the very spoken word still speaks life and healing to us today. It's not too late. The story is not over. There is still much yet to say. But in order to do that, we have to recognize that silence is not spiritual and it's time for us to speak. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you speak in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, and in the midst of the things that we feel are too painful to even name. Would you meet us here today and help us to see that you are present, that you care, and that your love will ever be among us, it will ever be in us, it will ever be around us. And so as a result of that, we will ever be praising you in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.